Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we are excited to welcome back Mark Dreyer, a luminary in the world of sports in China. With the Paris Olympics on the horizon, Mark gives us a sneak peek into the key stories and athletes poised to make headlines for China in the upcoming Summer Games and whether China is expected to dominate the medal table. Mark highlights the feel-good story of Zheng Qingwen and her remarkable performance at the Australian Open, as well as the rising popularity of F1 racing in China, evidenced by the anticipation surrounding the Shanghai F1 and the hype around homegrown talent Zhou Guanyu. Additionally, we touch upon the cultural phenomenon of Lionel Messi's stardom in China and the recent drama surrounding him sitting out a friendly match in Hong Kong. Mark also provides insights into the current state of Chinese men's and women's football. Finally, Mark highlights the noticeable upswing in recreational sports participation fueled by a growing focus on health and wellness, including the explosion in ski participation in the wake of the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Enjoy. And I know certainly in the past, they had this program where if you were in the top 50 gymnasts in the country, well, then you stayed in the Summer Olympics for gymnastics. If you were outside the top 50, maybe in the second 50, between 51 and 100, they were like, hmm, you want to go to the Olympics? You need to get some skis on. And so they get these gymnasts. And so they're unbelievable on the flips and the twists. They come from a gymnastics background. And then they've learned how to ski. They've done it that way around rather than a lot of the others uh, from all around the world where they probably started on the skis and then learned how to jump from there. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you for that very generous <laughs> introduction, but great to be back. Well, thank you for being very generous with your time. This is your second time on the show, and I do want to point people back to the first episode that we did, August of 2021. So it's been two and a half years. We're going to talk about a lot of things that have happened in that time. But first, as usual, where in the world are you as we record you today? So I'm currently in southern Taiwan in the uh, in the city of Kaohsiung, um, just here through to the end of the Chinese New Year. It's the holiday week at the moment. I'll be back in Beijing, which is my uh, usual home uh, in about a week or so. So um, that's where I usually am. But uh, my family actually relocated uh, to Taiwan during the pandemic. So I'm kind of in and out a little bit more than I used to be, but still uh, spending a, a large amount of time in China. Okay. So when it comes to food... I will admit, like, and I've said this before, I'm a big Dongbei, like a Dongbei Chu kind of guy, right? Like, I, I do prefer that. But you're in Taiwan and no shade on the rest of the world, but that's one of my favorite places in the world to eat. So I'd like your take on whether Beijing or, or Taiwan has better food. Oh, <laughs> not going to make any, not going to make any friends with any answer there. Um, I like, you know, I like different dishes from different places. Um, I'm probably not going to go with like the most spiciest ever, although spice has kind of grown on me as a, as I've as I've aged somewhat. Uh, although my kids probably <laughs> can can even take it up a little uh, a level. Um, I, you know, I'm a meat fan, a meat lover, so anything that kind of has a reasonably good quantities of of meat, whether they're wrapped or stewed or hot pot or anything like that you know that's a, that's generally a good option okay thank you for that i appreciate that it's always a hot button topic last had you on as i said august 2021 and that was just before the 2022 beijing olympics so i think i'd like to start by just asking you two years later any high level takeaways of the 2022 beijing olympics any any events or significance for china that have come from that so much happens in China in such a short space of time that it, it feels like a long, long time 
ago. Um, the Olympics, from 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 China's perspective, given that it was a COVID bubble, and and again that seems strange just to remember that, but it went it went off basically without a hitch. Um, they were sort of bracing for, you know. COVID issues. They were bracing for, for for possible even protests or scandals. And the biggest one was was the Valier the doping scandal, which just now, two years later, is is kind of getting resolved. But it, this didn't re- reflect badly on China. It was it was a it was a Russian issue and 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 sort of a global doping issue. Um, and so, from a Chinese perspective, the Olympics went off brilliantly. Uh, COVID didn't really impact it. China did very, very well in the medals table, nine gold medals, uh, outperforming, I think, even the most optimistic expectations. Um, Eileen Gu uh, caused a lot of, uh, well, she got a lot of attention on both sides of the planet, a lot of lot of opinions on her, both in the US uh, and, in, and in China. And she remains uh, the freestyle skier, if people are not familiar with her, but she remains one of the highest earning, uh, earning sports women in the world. I believe she's uh, number two or three currently, uh, mostly from endorsements. You don't um, uh, get a whole lot of money from from freestyle skiing and the circuit there, whereas most of the other top earners are, are female tennis players. We'll, we'll get on to tennis, I know, a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, the Olympics, it was given, given COVID, it was uh, – it wasn't. A, it wasn't a fun event in the way that an Olympics usually is. But it was a. It was successful by kind of every other metric. I think in terms of in terms of going off without a hitch, and and quickly skipping over the last t- two years. You know, China had the the COVID zero prolonged COVID zero situation, um, and lost uh, the hosting rights to the Asian Cup, which has just wrapped up in Qatar just just a, a week or so ago. So that was a disappointment, but. Where we are now is that things are now starting to come back. So we had some tennis tournaments towards the back end of last year. Finally, F1 is uh, is returning to Shanghai in in April, and that was sold out within minutes with a Chinese driver, uh, Joe Guan Yu. He's gonna he's from Shanghai. He's gonna finally, finally, finally get to drive in his home race. Uh, and I think we will see some soccer teams come back preseason over the, over the summer. Um, you know, there's, there's more tennis, there's more golf. So things are finally coming back to normal after this long COVID enforced absence. Uh, but yeah, there's been, there's been a lot happening. It really helped that China was able to pull off those Olympics somewhat so seamlessly and we say that even with reckless abandon, simply because it was coming out of COVID. They were the first Olympics kind of coming out of COVID. And 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 I think everybody just thought to go to the place that had some of the most severe restrictions when it came to COVID throughout COVID to try to host an Olympics. I think everybody was ready to give them a pass on any troubles they had. Right. Uh, They were almost kind of gifted a hall pass before it even started and they didn't need it at all. And I think so. That is just they got they got so much extra credit for the way they pulled it off, especially considering what people were already kind of prepping to have to kind of apologize for in a way. And they never had to. And do credit to them for pulling off such a such a nice event, given the circumstances. So well done to them. Let's start with skiing. Because uh, the ski season is starting to wrap up pretty much, you know what, we're in the middle of February as we record this. And that puts us near a month to a month and a half to the wrap up of ski seasons for most places in the Northern Hemisphere. What's the status of skiing in China, both in terms of elite competition and broader participation withholding discussion around the freestyle ski world cup, because we will talk about that after. So what is, what is the status of skiing both in terms of the elite competition and broader participation? So the, the winter Olympics of course was a huge driver for the, for the development of winter sports and the winter sports industry uh, in China. And one of the things that you have within the Olympics is you get the host named seven years ahead of time and so that that right there is the ramp that you need uh in terms of in terms of you know the development and the funding coming in the preparation even so in terms of elite competition it was probably an olympics too soon 
for China to really develop some world-class athletes outside of the sports in which it was already pretty good. So figure skating, speed skating, those were kind of the core um, uh, uh, Olympic sports where China had had performed at the Winter Olympics, of course, very, very dominant in the summer, less so in the Winter Games. So we're really kind of looking towards Milan in 2026 to see if they can make some breakthroughs in the medals tables in some of the other sports. For example, you know, cross-country skiing, there are a few younger athletes who have a lot of potential in 2022 can they get to the top level in 2026 that remains to be seen in terms of participation you know the slopes have been full for for a good few years and i and i think this is this is sort of the most uh encouraging thing when you look at the industry um there's a lot of first-time skiers um still you know so so if you know i know you're sitting in canada you, you would see some behavior on the slopes that would probably raise an eyebrow or two uh, but that's that's what you're going to get when a, a huge percentage of people are going out there for the first or the second or the third time. But, you know, as any snow lover knows, it's quite easy to get the bug. Um, and it's quite affordable here in China versus versus what it would be in, in, in other parts of the world. You know, uh, if you're staying locally and going up and driving from Beijing, for example, to some of the uh, ski hills where they had the Olympics, you know, it's not – you don't have to fly to Austria or, or, you know, Switzerland for a week. And then you've got all the associated costs. Of course, at the top end, you know, people still want to do that um, if, if, you're, if, you, if you're in that position. But skiing in China has become a more accessible sport than I think it is in other parts of the world because, uh, you know, uh, passes are reasonably affordable. Um, so, so that's encouraging. And then, of course, you've got you've got the you've got the skating, which has always been kind of a big thing. You have uh, some ski slopes in some southern areas of China, which are interesting developments. Uh, I don't have any data, unfortunately, on kind of how successful those are. But when you're in you know southern cities like Shenzhen and, and Guangdong Province, which is you know just just across from from, from Hong Kong, it's obviously warm. Throughout the year, it, you don't get natural snow or ice, but that's the same as many of the NHL cities in in the southern United States, and and they seem to have thrived in 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 certain places, not all, but but some places. So there's a precedent there for for for, for people being encouraged um, to, to 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 get involved in in winter sports and, and to continue. So so that's been good, uh, but yes, it's it's trending upwards. We won't really know. Um, there haven't been any massive breakthroughs that I've been aware of on this winter circuit in terms of elite competitions outside of the sports where where people have have, have already performed. But perhaps when the Olympic circuit comes back around in, in another couple of years, that's where China really focuses its efforts. And we'll see if some of those longer term projects um, have matured. Yes, for sure. Um, I I I think it's going to just need a little bit of seasoning, right? It needs a little bit of time. It's the access. Um, I think you start with access um, and start with introducing people to the sports, and then then we'll start to see people start to pay more attention to what's going on globally, get attracted to potentially uh, competing, and it goes from there. Uh, as you mentioned, yes, uh, I, I'm Canadian. And uh, so over here, yes, obviously, we're used to a lot of skiing and see some pretty good skiing stuff. I'm actually both skiing and playing hockey while recording this podcast. Mark. Um, <laughs> I didn't know if you knew that. Like a proper Canadian. All right, that's legit. I would expect nothing less. Correct. Thank you very much. I'm just going to head out and canoe a little bit later. <laughs> China also hosted the Freestyle Ski World Cup, as I mentioned earlier, are there any storylines coming out of that event? And I think you may have alluded to one particular person as well, but please comment on how that went. I mean, people might be surprised by this, Todd, it, when, you, when you talk about China and freestyle skiing. But if you look at the, the most recent results uh, on the World Cup circuit from Canada, you've got three Chinese men in the top five. You've got Qi Guangpu, who's the Olympic champion from two years ago, and then Wang Xindi, one and two on the podium. I mean, this is pretty impressive going, this is not, you know, this is not home judging in, and the Chinese competitions. This is all around the world in the, in the ski circuit. So there's long been this thing in China where, uh, it's, it's sort of converted gymnasts on skis. Uh, and, and I know certainly in the past they had this program where 
if you're in the top 50 gymnasts uh, in, in the country, well, then you stayed in the Summer Olympics for gymnastics. If you were outside the top 50, maybe in the second 50, between 51 and 100, they were like, hmm, you want to go to the Olympics? You need to get some skis on. And so they get these gymnasts. And so they're unbelievable on the flips and the twists. They come from a gymnastics background and then they've learned how to ski. They've done it that way around rather than a lot of the others uh, from all around the world where they probably started on the skis and then learned how to jump from there. Uh, and as you can see from the results, uh, one, two, and five uh, in the standings, at least in the most recent events, uh, an Olympic champion with with uh, with Chi Guangpu, you know, it works. It works. What we haven't seen too much of is some new faces coming through. These guys have been around a little bit, but usually, you know, the, it's 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 not a problem to have some some longstanding faces in there, and and they they get a bit of a chance to become more well known uh, domestically, and that helps the next generation. The more that 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 people are cultivated as as sort of stars and, and there's some name recognition there, the more you're going to have younger kids watching and thinking, hey, I want to be the next Qi Guangpu. You know, that's not a phrase you're going to get anywhere outside of China. But if you are a young freestyle skier, um, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 in China, that's who you want to be, the Olympic champion. And so although we don't see some of those names yet coming through, at least at the very top levels, um, the future will will likely be bright in, in in freestyle skiing at least, and and then of course on the women's side, you know Eileen Goose still one of the top names, um, just tremendously successful in pretty much everything she does. You know she's a pretty much a full time catwalk model. She's a current student at Stanford uh, and still skiing, and uh, you know at, at the top level, she got three medals uh, at the Beijing Olympics, including uh, including two golds and and. You know, it, the, the difficulty with, I think, the, the Winter Olympic sports is it it's so cyclical on that four-year basis. They don't get the attention of some of the other sports year-round that you do in tennis and, and some of those other sports. And so, um, you know, that that's a little bit challenging in terms of profile. But Chinese are still there in, in, in freestyle skiing for sure. And that's a very interesting thing that you pointed out. I just wanted to highlight. I thought that was very smart, This that, you know, they're taking gymnasts and turning them into freestyle skiers because is not the majority of what they actually need to be able to do well, to score well, a lot of gymnastic ability versus actual skiing ability. So I just started running through different sports in my head thinking maybe it's time we start to revisit how we transition from one sport to another and which would be good feeders from one sport to another. That's very interesting. And I'll probably think on that later tonight. Well, just to chip in, I mean, you look at diving, right? I mean, you don't need to be a, a good swimmer to be a good diver. You basically need to be a good gymnast. Uh, and it's no surprise that China dominates in that sport as well. And for the Winter Olympic program, uh, I don't know if we if we managed to discuss this last time I was on in the build-up to the Olympics, but China had this really interesting project where they were their big target was to get at least one athlete in every category. And so some of the sports like cross-country skiing, where they didn't have a history, they had to find athletes. And so they looked, for example, they found some cross-country runners uh, from southern provinces who had never been on skis. And they were like, you've got good aerobic skills. You've got some of the other qualities. And it was, it was, you know, to a certain extent, it's a bit of a guessing game. But you look at these attributes that can translate. Roger Federer is a great example of how sporting skill can translate across. He didn't actually specialize in tennis until later in life. You, you think sometimes, you know, the Tiger Woods, well, he's swinging a golf club from the age of two, from the age of three. That's what you need. That's not actually the case. Uh, if you are, you know, you've got the hand-eye coordination. You, you look at, we talked about hockey players. Hockey players go and hit a round of golf. They're, they're pretty good. They're not going to be pro golfers on their first week, but like they're generally pretty handy. Uh, it's the same with professional athletes just across all sports. They they typically good. And so that's why this this translation thing is like you get someone from a southern province who's never seen snow. This sounds crazy, but there is some there is some logic there. The average age of when an NHL player specialized in hockey is over the age of 14. And Wayne Gretzky, who by and large is still considered to be the greatest NHL player, hockey player um, uh, of all time, he is a devout 
uh, I'm very passionate about speaking to having diversity in athletic ability and the sports and interest when you're young, because he played a lot of lacrosse, played a lot of baseball uh, and, and developed his abilities through uh, a multitude of sports before actually really starting to concentrate on the one later. It's funny, and it's a really important point, Todd. I think it's it's worth reemphasizing because the stories that stand out, I mentioned Tiger Woods, you know, the Williams sisters in tennis. That's another classic example of, of, of the videos that people remember where they got Richard Williams, the father, you know, out with the two girls on the court at, at a very young age. And you, and you just kind of, it's seared into people's, thoughts that you have to start and specialize super, super young. And you see actually that with a lot of a lot of the Chinese parents. Uh, so for example, you see golf was a sport that at one time, uh, upper class Chinese parents thought this could be a way into professional sports or at least US North American college. Uh, and they would, you know, take, take the, there was a 14 year old um, who you may remember about a decade ago, uh, made the cut at the masters. There was a 14-year-old uh, who, at the 2013 Masters, made the cut, uh, Guan Tianliang. Incredible at the age of 14. Uh, and he wasn't a physical 14-year-old at all. And he then went on to play college golf, but he still hasn't really found his his game 11 years later, you know, now as a, as a 20-something. And, and, and it was it was just a, a classic case of burnout. It was too much too soon. There's too much focus uh, and, and, you know, his peak was, was 14, unfortunately, you know, hopefully he can, he can still young enough that he could find it. But, um, you know, you do see that focus, but, but from the, from the overview, the Olympic program, China didn't have that, that luxury of thinking, let's take three-year-olds and develop them into cross-country skiers because the Olympics was, was only a certain number of years away. So they had to take already talented high school athletes and try to fit them into winter sports the best they can and had not medal success, but that would just be, that would be unrealistic. But they had pretty good success at being competitive or at least not letting the side down competing at the Olympics. Okay, let me ask you this then. And it's very interesting. And, and it was, when you're talking about golf, the young person, I'm a member at the Vernon Golf Club. I was playing last year during the summer, only three of us going out. This 13 year old kid asked if we can, if he could join us. We're playing from the blues, not the tips. The tips are black. That's the farthest tee box, but we're playing the one up from that, the Blues. And he's going to join us. And this kid proceeds to shoot a 72. He, he went scratch on that round. He's 13, playing from the Blues with us. His second full 18 of the day. And it was absolutely remarkable. So um, I've, I've seen this kind of phenom almost up close but let me ask you this about, okay, in, in Canada, I coach two hockey teams, both U13 hockey teams, boy, a girls team and a boys team. And I, I know who drives the bus on the obsession with that some of these kids have or seem to have by how much they, they play a game and then they'll go to the outdoor rink and they'll play for another three hours under the lights until they're basically kicked off and told to go home. And I know that parents drive that. A lot. And one thing that I would think, one area of the world that I would think when I look at other things like academic studies, I think that that is a, a bit of a ground or a landscape where this is potentially one of the pitfalls where we see the rise in sports in general across the landscape of China start to grow. Do you think that we might see more examples of burnout? Uh, phenoms burning out due to potentially pressures from that vertical hierarchy of family in China? That's a great question. I think absolutely yes. I mean, the focus usually is on the, is on the ones who do make it, um, but that speaks to that pyramid of, of, of players just underneath. And, and I remember maybe five, six years ago, kind of in the wake of, of, uh, of, of Guan at the Masters that I was talking about earlier, you know, there was... Uh, a bunch of there was a good core of sort of 15 16 year olds from China in golf who were who were making waves in the junior rankings very few of them have have come through and and they're certainly not challenging i don't think many people listening uh to the podcast would be able to name uh 
probably any Chinese golfers. If, if they're really into golf, maybe Li Hao Tong has 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 done okay, um, but he was probably a little bit before that wave, and he had some very down years as well. Um, you know, so so. <sighs> I think golf golf's a great example because the difference between being scratch. Uh, you look at you look at college golf, and, and I I played with with someone similar who who uh, he was a, a family was from Hong Kong, but but grew up in Canada uh, and played on the Yale team for four years. Just unbelievable. He taught me through. I mean. It, I could speak for 30 minutes on John, just this round I had with him. Crazy. You know, you saw the same thing up close. And I said, why didn't you go pro? And he said, look, there's hundreds of us who are at this level, at the college level. And the stats are, you know, three or four every year have a successful pro career. He came back to China. He entered a professional tournament. He won it. And he still was like, yeah, golf's not for me. It's just to – so the difference at the top in a sport like that – comes down to you know so many different things they all have mental coaches they all have individual swing coaches they have their their college coach you know so that's that's a lot of things there but but the burnout the mental pressure i think more than anything else in a sport an individual sport like this is absolutely insane and how do you prepare for that in the same way because all the background that you've had is is all physical it's all do this with your swing do that with it but but what you need at the top level, and I'm not speaking from experience as a professional player, but but you know it's it, it's it, it's it's pretty obvious from the outside. It's the difference. It's that mental attitude. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't have that focus, and I think if you look at the Olympic sports where the people who make it to Olympic champion uh, from China, they've come out of this pressure cooker factory from gymnastics, from diving, from table tennis where there are so many people competing for that for that same spot on the Chinese team it's it's coming out of that surviving that whoever comes out on top is not quite automatically olympic champion but they got a pretty good shot at it but you have to remember for every one olympic champion there are 50 100 hundreds of people who are so nearly there but don't quite make it and that's you know that does that mean the system's successful? There's been a lot of self-reflection in China over the last few years because it's it's now for the first time, well, going back, but but over the last decade, for the first time, we've heard some of these stories of the nearly maids, you know, the also-rans, who were Olympic champion, but then found begging on a subway a few years later. Um and and some of that some of that more personal element has come through. So so how do you judge success? Olympic gold, yes, but what comes next, and and what is the cost to uh, to, to some of this? I want to talk about the upcoming Summer Olympics in Paris. I'm wondering if you could highlight, uh, talk about a few key stories or athletes that are worthy of talking about uh, for China heading into the Summer Games, and what is the expectation for China's performance this year? So I'm going to pick one sport in particular because I think it kind of sums up the whole essence of of, of what the Olympics have become for, from China, and, and a lot of it is about you know performing well and bringing showing China's strength on the world stage, and it's been very very good at that. They topped the medals table in Beijing. Uh, that was a home Olympics, so you always get that home boost. They haven't topped the medal table since, but Tokyo was a very, very close battle between the U.S. and China. And this, you know, we see reflected the U.S. and China, this rivalry of the two superpowers in pretty much every field, you could you could kind of set the, the U.S. and China up. And so obviously this is sport, this is, this is soft power, this is different to, to, you know, military power and politics and geopolitics and so on. But I think a lot of people, it resonates, that rivalry still resonates at the Olympic level. And it was very close, but the U.S. pulled it out just in the last day or two. But China was looking like it was hanging on there. And so they will be very keen to try to beat the U.S. for the number one spot in the, the in Paris in the medals table. So that will, is it, what it's all about for them. It's, uh, it's all about the, those gold medals. The U.S. still has this system that most of the rest of the world does not have, where they go by total medals. That's the rankings. But the official IOC, the Olympic ranking, is ranking by golds. And that's what it's all about for China. Um, you know, we saw famous stories at the Beijing Olympics, if I digress for a moment, where you have athletes from other countries who are celebrating a bronze. 
And then if you're Chinese and you and you and you you only end up with a silver, you're on the podium in tears. You know, it's it's not quite gold or nothing, but it's not far off. Uh, particularly when you have 50 other Olympic champions, you know that's that what that's what gets the attention. And so, back to the sports, the swimming pool, which has long been the place where the Americans have dominated. China has been making strides, and they've had some swimmers over the years. In London, 2012, we had uh, Sun Yang. Uh, he's obviously got his own story, but there was also uh, Ye Shuwen, a young uh, a female swimmer who, who got a couple of golds. Now, just in the last few days, we've had a 19-year-old Chinese male swimmer at the World Championships in Doha, Pan Jianle. He won the world record in the 100-meter freestyle. This was absolutely incredible. This was in the relay, but it was the leadoff leg, and so the world record for the individual still counts in that leadoff leg alone. China won the gold overall. They have another 16-year-old who, who, who swam the third leg, Jian uh, Shuo, uh, who almost nothing is known about him, but he is a star in the making as well. And so you've got these Chinese swimmers who are now reaching their prime. There's still some big, big names. Canada has some some very good swimmers at the moment, uh, and of course the US. But I think if China can make some inroads into, you know, what has been historically American territory in the pool, uh, then that could make the difference because China's going to bag golds in weightlifting and in diving and in gymnastics and in table tennis and all the, the historical sports where China has dominated. Uh, and so it's going to be really, really interesting to watch. But I think the pool, more than anything, uh, could be, could, could be, there could be some fun battles there. We're going to switch to another sport here. One of the other feel-good stories in China sports is Zheng Qingwen. Tell us about her and her performance at the Australian Open. Well, she is now uh, in the top 10. If you haven't been following tennis over the last few years, the, the women's rankings have changed quite a lot. Uh, it, we haven't had the consistency that we've had for, for, for almost, well, decades. We're in the men's side with with the big three. Um, but Zhang Qingwen got to the final of the, of the Australian Open and uh, the draw just opened up for her. She was seeded. Uh, she was, uh, I believe, the 12th seed. Uh, but she had she had a pretty favorable draw and played very very well. Um, had a disappointing uh, you know game in the final against Sabalenka, who was just dominant. But she was the defending champion. Um, Zhang Qingwen, I think, was was is is a is a star. She is she hasn't yet won a Grand Slam, but I am fairly confident in predicting that she will win one in her career. She's been on the. She's been talked about in these terms by people who know what they're talking about for a number of years. She is, you know, she's Nike and IMG. She's she's basically the next Lina, and so the same types of people that that have seen Lina develop into a two-time uh, Grand Slam champion, um, you know, have have been talking about Jung Chin Wen. She got to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open uh, last year, and so that's why. Um, when she sort of first made a bit of a move. She's now, I believe, number seven in the world ranking. So this is a name you're going to start to hear a lot of. More than that, she is just, I mean, she ticks every marketing box. She she has it all. She's vibrant. She's lively. She speaks good English. Um, many of the tennis players do because it's an international tour. But I, I say that because it is important when you're talking about the global market marketability of a Chinese sports sports star. If you get a table tennis player who only speaks Chinese, well, it, it's not a criticism on the person's table tennis playing ability, of course, but you're not going to become a big name elsewhere. And I, I do think that Zhang Qianwen could be a brilliant thing for China. She could be the best ambassador that, that China has, not just in sports, but anywhere. You know, she is a great personality. I hope that she's allowed to develop the way that she wants to develop, she's able to keep her team, she's able to kind of keep her schedule and choose the tournament she wants to play in, and they don't try to fit her into what is perceived as some sort of, you know, official Chinese mold. I think that would that would that would do her and the country uh, a disservice. But she could be a big star. She is already a big star. She's top ten in the world, uh, but she's only twenty one. And again, off the court, watch for her endorsement to absolutely soar. Women's tennis dominates the rankings when you look at that top 10 of, of the highest earning female athletes in the world. Uh, she's going to be right up there within a year or two if she's not already and could be there for years to come. 
uh, given her age. I was grinning when you mentioned about her English because somewhere my my dear grandmother, rest in peace, uh, was shaking a wooden spoon at me when you said speaks good English because all I could hear her was in the back of my head going, it's not speaks good English, it speaks English well. So <laughs> that's why I was right. grinning about that. That's it. Uh... That's funny. I <laughs> Usually the conversation I have with my kids uh, uh, every morning is, how do you sleep? And they say, good. And I said, how do you sleep? And they say, good. And then I say, how do you sleep? And they say, well, and I'm like, thank you. So um, I should uh, I should take my own advice a little bit more. But then on the other hand, I'll ask my yeah, my kids, it's so ingrained in them. I say, well, you know, I'll make them dinner. I'm like, how was it? And they say, well, and I'm like, oh, geez, I've gone too far. <laughs> the Super Bowl just wrapped up. Where did you watch the game? Did you watch the game? What were the numbers on um, how well it was viewed or digested in China? Well, it was um, uh, a little bit early in this part of the world, of course, uh, and I couldn't persuade the kids to come out and watch with me. So I sort of followed it from from, from home online and, and watched extended highlights, but I was kind of aware of it uh, uh, all the way through. In terms of where it is in China, I mean, it's still, it's still a niche sport for sure. Um, I think on the plus side, um, you see more people kind of flag football or this organic growth of people doing flag football leagues, these are growing. Uh, and it, for, for people who used to play five-a-side soccer on some of the outdoor fields, the two sports that they now complain again uh, about because they can't book the fields as, as easily as they used to be was ultimate frisbee and, uh, and, and flag football. And it's good to see this more organic rise of people who've just embraced the sport and say, hey, I really like this and I'm going to teach it to other people and try and get some momentum there. And, you know, when it when you talk about flag football, it can be co-ed, it can be pretty inclusive. Everyone can kind of, uh, you, you know, you're, it's, it's very different from a North American perspective where people are growing up. People are learning how to play for the first time. Um, but you can have this this more inclusive environment where it doesn't matter how good you are or how big you are or, you know, male or female or age. Everyone can kind of play together And when it comes to flag football. The NFL itself has a, a much reduced presence to what it's had in the past, I don't necessarily think that's more uh, a reflection of them leaving the China market, more of just having uh, putting more of their priorities internationally on other markets such as the UK, Mexico, Brazil, some of the key markets for, for, for the NFL outside of China. Uh, but it is here. And it is, um, you know, they've got some, some good broadcast deals uh, in terms of the streaming platforms. And so, yeah, it's kind of bubbling away. Um, I don't expect we're going to see any dramatic rise anytime soon. Uh, of course, they'd love to have uh, a homegrown player, but I think we're more likely to see that in a sport such as baseball, where MLB has three training centers in China and has been making some real progress and, and making some real inroads at the grassroots level. That seems to be a sport that would just translate better. You see baseball is massive in Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Uh, it hasn't yet taken off in China, but there's no reason in in my mind uh, that you can't have a you know a, a homegrown Chinese player who could who could make it in the big leagues big leagues over there. I think that's going to be much harder to do uh, in in a, in a sport such as uh, as American football. I want to dive into the footy just a little bit. I want to start by just talking about the messy thing. Uh, can you just? I'm just going to leave it at that. What happened? What is going on? Why is it in the news so much right now? So Inter Miami, uh, the MLS team that Messi plays for, of course, played in Hong Kong recently and tickets were not cheap and everyone was there not to see Inter Miami, but to see Messi himself. Now, he had a bit of a niggle. Uh, he, uh, long story short, didn't come on at all and the fans were furious. And the communication from the team and from Messi himself was was poor. Uh, I think that's a charitable uh, um, <laughs> assessment of, of of how they handled it. Uh, but it blew up into sort of much more than this, and there were it became a huge online incident in China. Uh, and there were people from the Hong Kong government who were even suggesting that this was a deliberate snub, which was just nonsense. And their evidence was that, for example, he played in Japan a few days later. Well. As most people who know anything about sports, athletes do get injured and then they rest because the doctors say if you 
play on on this injury, it will get worse and it's, it's too big a risk. And if you're worth as much as Messi is worth, as valuable as him, then you don't want to take any risks. And so it's perfectly understandable that he would rest one game and then be recover enough to play 30 minutes in Japan the following week. But this was seen as a sort of a deliberate snub. There's some rivalry between China and Japan. And it got so bad that the Argentina friendlies, uh, featuring, of course, Messi, uh, that they were going to have against a couple of African teams next month in Beijing and Hangzhou have now been cancelled because Messi is got he's gone from an absolute hero when he played in Beijing last June and the craziness around that, the Messi mania that we saw was unbelievable. And we can talk about that if you'd like. He's gone from, you know, the classic hero to zero, at least in the eyes of the of uh, of the online public. The whole thing is ridiculous. It was blown way out of proportion. Um, but that's that is one of the pitfalls of this market in, in terms of how hot things can get and to a certain extent how hot things are allowed to get given the given the control of, of the narrative here. Um, but yeah, it was a... Uh, can I challenge that though? Yes. I, I mean, there's a lot of economics that play into this. Yeah. You had to know how many people were coming specifically to see him play. If you yeah. had plans, and, and I know that rest is planned, I know that Major League Baseball managers plan days of rest well in advance. It is scheduled weeks, if not months, in advance. I don't think that at that level it should be fumbled as it's reported. I think he could have done 15, maybe 10 minutes in Hong Kong and then maybe 15, 10 minutes in Tokyo. I think there's ways to spread the wealth knowing the draw and the the economic draw that you have there, I would also be annoyed and think that at that level, there are enough smart people involved that should have known better um, and could have handled it better, whether it's putting another event on Messi to be able to speak to or be available to the throngs of people who pay good money, bought the jerseys, everything, etc., with the expectation to be able to see him on the field. You want to be able to go and be able to tell your kids or your family or brag or put it on social media that you were at a place where Messi played footy and that was robbed of of a lot of people. You could have been out in front of that if that was your plan all along as well. So I would agree with much of that. Um, let me just sort of, sort of respond. I mean, I think it was staggering where you've got someone like David Beckham who is – uh, you know, the owner of, 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 of the Miami team and his team. And he was there, of course, as well. Um, his team of PR, I mean, I mean, they have a, an amazing PR team. How were they able to allow this to be handled so badly? Uh, because there, there was an absence of communication. I think what it boils down to is that there were different agendas at play here. If you're the organizers, and this was a group called Tassler Asia, um, you don't want to announce beforehand that Messi is not going to play if you find out that he is not able to play because then all the people are going to be demanding refunds and so suddenly your economics are thrown out of whack. The Hong Kong government had sort of billed this as a big event. Uh, they've been under pressure to, to sort of bring some global attractions to Hong Kong and, and that's a whole other story. So they desperately wanted him to play. The team was saying, well, you know, we make game time decisions. Often, as you know, in sports, sometimes... You don't know until an hour or two. You know, he goes into the into the warm-up. Is he able to play? Is he not? It's like, ah, it feels a bit of a tweak. The doctor's like, I'm not going to risk it. And so you say, well, he could have done 10 minutes. I don't know that that's necessarily what you want to be doing with Messi. You wouldn't if that's the actual truth. And then you handle it and you apologize. And I think everybody from Miami dang well knows that going to Hong Kong, it's all about Messi. And so anything to do with Messi has to be handled with impudence and expeditiously and has to be very, very transparent. And I think there's a lot of apology owed. So there was another there was another issue. And again, there's there's so many different details and you can see it different ways. But there was something in the contract about, you know, if he wasn't injured, he had to play at least 45 minutes. And so the 10 minutes thing, you know, some one angle would be, well, if he can't play 45 then he can't play, uh, you know, there's no point getting him on for 10. And, you know, when you're making, when you're making purely economic decisions, 
for, for what should be a sporting occasion. I totally understand. I totally sympathize with the fans in the stadium. And I would be pissed if I'd paid to see him because, you know, frankly, if you're not really there to see the rest of the teammate, yes, there's, there's Luis Suarez, but it's not the same deal. Um, you know, I, it, it was just handled very badly. If Messi had got onto the, taken the mic in the stadium and, and sort of said, hey, I'd love to play for you guys. I'll be back as soon as I can. I'm so sorry. That would have gone a long way, I think. Totally. One but that's thing. not messy. You know, that's not his style. He's pretty low key. He's pretty, he's not a great speaker. Um, you don't get a choice. He's, 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 you have to do it. Well, I know. You don't get a choice. As brand, as, as brand messy, it's, uh, it's difficult. But then you're making decisions based on the business and on the politics and the sporting uh, criteria is, is almost completely sidelined. If you've got a doctor saying only we, only him and his doctor know how bad the injury was, right? Um, what could he do for 10 minutes? If, is he walking around and barely able to touch the ball because he doesn't want to tweak something? Then that's almost worse than, than not coming on because people are going to expect him to do all these fancy dribbles in those 10 minutes. So, you know, it was, it's, well, it certainly blew up. And, and as, as this conversation shows, there's so many different ways and there's all the political aspects as well uh, that we haven't even really uh, we've just just touched on here, uh, but that's why it was such a such a, a hot incident, uh, and everyone was talking about it for the last uh, for the last little while here. I don't know. I mean, it is footy. He could have walked out there and then had somebody brush him with a feather <laughs> and had him fall to the ground, screaming in pain, rolling and rolling and writhing and writhing, and carried off on a stretcher. Uh, because hey, it is footy, and then you know people would have believed him. Now. What is the status of Chinese men's and women's football? And and I, I assume we're talking about footy here. But can we, because I know there's something to the juxtaposition of the men's versus the women's. And that's almost the perspective that I'd like to hone in uh, a little bit on as well. But can you talk about Chinese men's and women's uh, football slash soccer in, in China? Yeah, I'm, I, yeah. <sighs> I, I'm, I'm stuttering here because honestly, there are just no positives right now. For, for Chinese football. Yes, the women have been better, but they are not doing great. They did not qualify for the Olympics and the, and the coach was sacked as a result of that. Um, so they've had a, a tough couple of years, even though they, they, they won an Asian Cup uh, in the previous cycle. The men were just atrocious at the Asian Cup. And this should have been China's showcase tournament. They were supposed to host it the previous summer. But then because of COVID, COVID restrictions, they, they had to give up the hosting rights. And that's why it was in Qatar in the winter months rather than in China in the previous summer. They didn't score a single goal. They didn't score a single goal. And uh, there was one stat that I was sent. Uh, China extended its record. I mean, this, this, I think, sums up. China extended his record as the team with the most losses in Asian Cup history. They've lost 21 times now. They lost uh, one nothing to Qatar, the host nation, and then had two uh, scoreless draws, nil-nil. Um, so, you know, they got two points, but didn't score a goal in its three group games and then lost to the hosts. Uh, they've lost more times than any other country. And I think to rub insult into to you know to, to rub salt into the wounds here to add i'm mixing my mess for <laughs> mixing my mess for adding insult to injury <laughs> i was trying to say jordan is a team that is ranked lower than china in the world rankings and china is not high at all and they got to the final so okay the world rankings fifa world rankings mm -hmm. not perfect but they are at least a guide as to how a team is doing and Jordan was able to put it together with a little bit of morale and, and, and momentum and some team spirit and togetherness to ride that wave. And they got some lucky breaks, but they got through to the final, you know, an incredible performance um, fr from Jordan to do that. China was just absolutely dreadful. Uh, and, you know, they had a, they had a warm up match beforehand against Hong Kong. Behind closed doors, this was a friendly behind closed doors. They had three red cards, including one of their coaches was sent off in that game. Now that tells you the state of mind of the team. If they, if they are losing their heads in a behind closed doors game that they lost to Hong Kong in the week before the tournament, I mean, things are not good. And then off the scenes, 
again, I could talk for hours on this, but there's ongoing corruption allegations and investigations and, and people are now being given years long sentences or expecting that to be happening in the next few weeks and months as this ongoing uh, anti-corruption campaign sort of wades its way through sports, but with a focus on football. So that's not great. And then the women's, yes, historically they've been better, but they're also in a bit of a downside. So plenty of positives to look at in the wider sports realm uh, for, for China when we talk about tennis, Formula One, you know, winter sports, uh, general sports and fitness, but not when it comes to the so-called beautiful game. It is not, there's, there's not much beauty in Chinese soccer right now. As you said, it is, it is the expectation that this should be a game that we should be able to be quite competitive at um, and yet still have not seen results there. So yes, probably some disappointment amongst those involved with soccer in China. I mean, it, if I could point to one bright spot, it, the, the support, the interest is still there. And and I go back to, you know, obviously Messi is now, you know, the temporarily the most hated man in China. You know, that's an exaggeration. But if we went back to June and the craziness that we saw about when, when Argentina played Australia in Beijing, ticket prices were through the roof. And I thought, I thought they've mispriced this badly. I thought people aren't going to turn up. It was impossible to get tickets. There were tens of thousands of people outside that stadium um, wearing messy shirts who didn't have a ticket, who were just there to soak up the atmosphere, to soak up the attention. And so, yes, this was a little bit of individual celebrity and the cult of Messi, if you will, rather than just the football. But the interest is there. And, and so long term, that passion, the sports fan still exists in China. They just don't have one of their own to celebrate. And there's no particular green shoots. You know, there's no there's nowhere really to point to. There's no promising kids who are coming through the system. And you think this could be a star of the future. We'll have to find those in other sports, unfortunately. But the passion is there. And so that, if nothing else, is, is still uh, a reason for optimism. Well, hopefully those tickets were not as expensive as tickets to the Usher concert, where apparently Taylor Swift's boyfriend was playing some sporting event uh, or some sort of game there. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask just generally about all the other sports in one fail swath. Um, recreational sports participation. More people are just focusing on health and fitness. Could it be it could be hiking? It be, could be kayaking. It can be all kinds of things. Um, is that just generally something that you're noticing? Are people getting out? Are they getting outside? Are they getting uh, into form? Are they taking those risks? Are they jumping off cliffs or out of airplanes? And are there any sports, uh, interesting sports in particular, that people are taking up and paying attention to in China? In summary, yes, that is happening. Uh, you know, I don't think there's a huge growth in, for example, like the most extreme stuff, but you do see a little bit of everything. And I think the most positive thing about this is this, this is more of an organic trend. This is the Chinese population recognizing the value of sports and trying to uh, live slightly more balanced lives. Yes, there's still a focus on academics and, and when stuff gets real for their children around the age of 14 and 15, some of the sports does get squeezed out. But we're talking about the parents. We're talking about the, the middle-aged population as well who are going to the gyms and getting out running in the way that you just didn't see seven to 10 years ago. You know, it's been a, it's been an ongoing trend, I think, but we're seeing, you know, the rise of gyms and running and fitness and yoga and those sport, uh, so, uh, those sorts of mass participation sports, you know, as you sit in Canada, Lululemon has seen absolutely unbelievable growth here. That sort of stuff, you know, people love the brands, they love that fitness and, and it's almost sort of a rite of passage for, for, for young Chinese, you know, you've got to get your, your Lululemon and go to the gyms with, with your friends. Um, and it, it's great to see, you know, it, it really is because this is creating a, a healthier, happier population, more active population, more balanced population in terms of their focus. And, you know, when it's, when it's sports such as running, it doesn't cost you anything other than, you know, the equipment that you have. And so if you, you know, people who are, who are listening to this in terms of opportunities, you know, we're seeing, Still a healthy rivalry between local brands and and uh, 
and international brands. You know, that's an ongoing story. You've got Anta, you've got Leaning, you've got some of the other Chinese uh, brands in terms of sportswear and, and sports clothing, but you still got, you know, healthy sales for, for people like Nike and, and Adidas and so on. And, you know, there'll be, there'll be rises and falls. Sometimes you get some, some interesting nationalist elements and people want to buy local for certain reasons. And, and there's a bit of play in this in the media and so on. But I think longer term, there's a place for there's a place for everyone. It'll be interesting to see um, who is successful there and why. Uh, but it's all keyed off the fact that this is a growing market. And um, I say organic, and I think that's important because we've seen some of the the government pushes in in football, which was sort of a bit of a false start in winter sports, which is probably more successful. Uh, but this was, I think, has a better chance of, of longer term success just because it's it's a shift towards sports from the people themselves. Uh, and it's not it's, it's not something that they have to do, you know, where people are opening football schools and saying you must play football. If you're forcing people things to, to uh, forcing people to do things they don't necessarily want to do, I'm not sure that's as sustainable. Whereas this does feel natural and organic and and positive, and and I think that's that's another reason for 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 you know, optimism and growth of this sector. I think that if you are in the industry of sports in any way, and you've been waiting for that tipping point, waiting for China to really be what you think it could be, I think now the time has come. I really do feel like they are um, there, just mentally and philosophically, culturally, economically, financially, um, with availability and investment and then head, you know, tailwinds from, from government desire. It is really there. It is really coming. Health, nutrition, all of it, the awareness, the adoption. You can see it in the trends. You can see it in the data that it is coming, that the interest is there, the awareness is there, the drive is there, the push is there. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be fun. I think you and, you and, and what you do kind of being the Ray Romano of everybody loves Raymond job that you have in, in China, being able to report on sports all the time. That really ages me that reference to that show that you may not even know of, but he was a sports reporter on that show. It's, it's a wonderful time to be Mark Dreyer reporting on sports in China. That's all I'm trying to say. Now, as a final question, Anything that we haven't talked about? You got one last chance. Any really interesting, unique sports story in China that we haven't touched on yet? You know, I was thinking about this, and I, and I think all the thoughts that I had, I probably managed to squeeze into to, to previous questions. And so I'll take this slightly differently, if you just allow me a little bit of license here. You know, I think with COVID and, and sort of China's longer COVID period as well, with, with ongoing restrictions that lasted a bit longer, we've seen, um, we saw a massive gap in communication between, you know, people in China and people overseas. And I think, I think a lot of people lost from that. Um, I think you see a lot of headlines in China, and, and these are often fairly negative about, about the direction that China is taking. But I think, Below that and beyond that, you have 1.4 billion Chinese people who are largely like you and I and largely have the same interests and hopes for themselves and for their families. And when it comes to sports, you know, increasingly getting into sports. And I think that lack of global travel that we've seen both in and out of China, it's still way, way down on pre-pandemic levels. I would encourage people to, to, to travel to China if they get a chance, maybe as part of a longer trip if, if you get that opportunity. And, you know, hopefully more Chinese people can go. We, we used to see this huge rise of sports travel. So a lot of Chinese fans were traveling to events around the world. Um, the Australian Open Tennis, which is where Jiang Tiwen, of course, made her breakthrough just a few weeks ago. That was very much billed as the Grand Slam of the Asia Pacific because of the rise of Chinese women's tennis. There's a lot of Chinese fans there, but I, my sense is a lot of them are, are from the uh, the, the, the large overseas Chinese population in Australia rather than people flying in from, from China to support Jiang Tianwen and others. But I'd like to see more Chinese people go to, to World Cups. We were seeing that beforehand, uh, even though their team isn't playing, you know, with, with, there were golf tours all around Scotland and, and people, uh, you know, going to sporting events around the world, but just more Chinese people interacting and, and 
more touch points between the people of China and the people of other countries, I think, can only be a good thing for the world and create a slightly more stable global relationship. Uh, because sometimes when we leave it to our governments, they don't always uh, handle things in the best way, shall we say. And so, you know, I think that's a better a better way to keep things on some sort of uh, even keel, I think, because, uh, like I said, the the people of China are lovely, and 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 you know you've lived there, um, so you know this. But uh, but sometimes this gets lost in the mix of of the the kind of the, the high level headlines about about evil China and, and the direction that it's taking. Mark Dreyer, senior director of marketing and communications for AmCham China, also the founder and editor of China Sports Insider and the author of Sporting Superpower, an insider's view on China's quest to be the best. Thank you very, very much for your time today and being on our show once again. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks very much. All right. As usual, for all of you who are listening audio only, go check out the YouTube channel at WPIC to catch more content and some YouTube shorts. And for those over there and want to get audio only so that you can drive or run on your treadmill, Go to any of your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and you will catch us there. But for me and for Mark and for the entire negotiation team, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.